0: What's up, everyone? Glad to be back with you. My name is Jonathan, and today we're going to talk a bit more about the church. We're going to follow up with last week's episode with this one and respond to, well, lots of questions, but essentially how to move forward with the church. Uh, I've had a lot of young people recently ask me, like, what is even the point as we think about moving forward uh, in the future with faith communities given that we've had so many problems? So we're going to try to chat about that. I'm also going to talk with my friend, the Reverend Libby Tetter hugus on my Patreon page. So uh, you'll have to hear the whole conversation there, but you'll hear a little bit of that here first. But I talk with her about church, also about parenting, which is a big question a lot of young parents have, like how to raise my kids in this new non-binary, non-violent, non-scapegoating love atmosphere. So I hope you don't miss that. So yeah, the question has been posed, is it even helpful to have church anymore? So I imagine there are probably, loosely speaking, three groups of people listening to what I have to say. Number one, you might be part of the the group of people who, honestly, you kind of already have a healthy church experience, we might say like a decent faith community, one where the pastor or the imam or the rabbi or the leader, whoever, we'll we'll just call him a pastor, has the ability to entertain intellectually honest questions. And if that's you, then first of all, you should be really thankful. And uh, next time you're around him or her, you should give them a hug or a fist bump or a high five, you know, whatever the protocol calls for in your situation. But secondly, I hope that if this is you, that you can be patient with the rest of us as we work through some of our issues and just recognize that what you have is, is pretty rare, especially in this day and age, or maybe it's been rare in any day and age, a place where you can actually entertain questions and still interact with God and love and kind of keep your own autonomy and agency Yeah, that's a place for which you should be thankful. And so my hope for you as you listen to this is that you would just be patient with the rest of us. Now, you might be a part of a second group. This second group, gosh, I have compassion for. It's a group of people who are realizing that they've been a part of a religious system. It's not necessarily been bad up until now, but now you're realizing that the system itself is a, is a much smaller box than you ever had imagined. And as you entertain various questions, and these questions could be, they could be coming from all different kinds of angles. I mean, they might be metaphysical kind of questions, like, you know, does God control and is everything predetermined? Um, they may be like human kind of questions, like maybe your child just came out of the closet. Gosh, I I don't even like that phrase because honestly, the closet was made by the church to begin with, whatever. Um, So maybe your kid just came out and you're wrestling with trying to figure out how to deal with that. Or maybe it's just, you know, questions around general xenophobia and misogyny in your church and patriarchy and institutionalized thinking. could be any number of things, but what you're realizing is as you've been pulling at the thread that it has been exposing huge holes in the sides of your little box. And so here you are, you got one foot in the box and one foot now outside the hole, you know, out in the world. And you're realizing that the world is so much bigger than you had ever imagined. And I remember when that was happening to me, it was a feeling, I often use the word untethered. Um, It was destabilizing. Like, oh, here's this huge, beautiful world that's been outside this box I've been living in? How is this even possible? And so I hope if you're a part of that group, as you listen to this, you can lean into, but really I hope just courage, to have the courage to keep stepping outside uh, of that box. Because I think it's true to say that things that you see, you can't unsee. Things that you hear, you really can't unhear. And so the hope is that you will just keep following the invitation to lean into freedom into this big wide spacious world that we all live in. Maybe you're part of a third group. You're you're the kind of person that frankly you've just you've just had it with organized religious thinking with the institutionalized way the church has processed all of this stuff. And I don't even blame you. I mean the kind of BS that you've been exposed to or suffered or been abused with. It's maddening, really. And you're justified in having the feelings that you've had and that you currently have. And you may never walk through the doors of a church again, and it's fine if you don't. But my hope for you either way is that you might be open to grace and mercy no matter where you go. And if you're not ready yet to hear this, it's totally fine. But what I suspect is... And this comes to me after having talked to a lot of people along these lines now, and also having had to entertain the voices inside my own head along these lines. uh, What I suspect is, is that the kinds of things that your particular faith community did to you, or exposed you to, or conditioned you to think, it's the kind of things you now wish upon them. Like they told you to believe their truth, or... In essence, they would think poorly of you. Well, now you want them to believe your truth. And if they don't, you will definitely think poorly of them. Like they conditioned you to be judgmental. And now you want to channel the fury of your judgmentalism onto them. Or they taught you to sacrifice real life relationships in order to fit into their groups. And now you want them to be sacrificed. And I'm not laughing at you. I think... I'm responding that way because the only other emotion to go is maybe to cry. And, you know, no one wants me to start crying at least this early in the podcast. Yeah, it's it's a bit maddening, but I suspect the very thing that you are railing against is now the thing tempting you to do that back to them. The struggle against darkness can definitely lead us into a new land of darkness. And so to prevent this, One needs to reflect and pray and be self-aware and continually align, I think, with an uncontrolling love. But I hope wherever you are, whatever you're doing, and whether you even call yourself a Christian or are ever interested in being part of a church again, I hope you will lean into mercy and to grace because I do believe that it really is stronger than sacrifice. And there are certainly subgroups of all the groups we've already mentioned. But what I imagine is, is that if all of us could be patient and take courage and lean into mercy and grace, we'd, well, we'd begin to craft a way to move forward. And the question has been asked, given that Christianity in the West has been such a car wreck, is there any reason to keep on meeting? Like, what is even the point? Now, there will be traditionalists who... I I suppose, gasp at what I'm about to say. You know, folks who are really loyal to the core, and I definitely want to say, I am thankful for some of those folks. I I wouldn't be where I'm at with some of those people. We got to have folks who are loyal, for sure. But sometimes I think, and if this doesn't fit for you, then fine. Um, You don't have to adopt it into your thinking. But sometimes I think the loyalty can turn into a type of blindness. And then even worse, sometimes, I don't really think it's about people who are loyal. I kind of think it's about people who haven't mustered the courage to stand up or speak out against a particular system that keeps perpetuating certain injustices. And sometimes that gets called loyalty when it really should be called something else. I'll let you decide what that something else is. So for the traditionalists and the loyalists, take a breath, But I want to say that if anyone is trying to craft a way forward with this church stuff that isn't replete with patience and courage and mercy, it's not really a way forward. So no, my my short answer is in that situation, it isn't meaningful to keep the church going. We have to figure out new ways forward. I think theologically going forward is going backward, but not in the sense of trying to get back to something like whole and complete, rather that love itself has a type of incompleteness within it. Love's consent has always allowed for antagonism. So in a sense, love's never been whole in the way that we typically think of whole. I think we must speak of the H-O-L-E, whole, inside of the W-H-O-L-E, whole. Now, this isn't original with me. Philosophers who've been influenced by Bill Hegel say such things. So yes, it would be Hegelian to say that contradiction ebbs and flows in the middle of all that is, including love. And if you just heard me mention Hegel, and then your knee-jerk response is like, well, there's your problem. You're reading Hegel and not the Bible. Well, I've got two pieces of bad news for you. Technically, number one, I'm not even sure I've read Hegel. I mean, I've tried some, it's a difficult read, but mostly I read people who have read him. Secondly, you're sorely lacking in your awareness of how all of us interpret something through a particular lens. No one just picks up the Bible, reads it, and suddenly gains the proper worldview. You read it in your own language, which comes with all of its own paraphrases and mistranslations, comes with all of its own social constructs, with micro-tyrannies and constraints, through your own body and mentality, your own psyche with all of its inherent biases and stories. A great deal of how to read anything better, including the Bible, is to gain some self-awareness about what it is that's influenced you to think the way you think. To disassemble the thinking, take a look at it as best as you can, and then to do your best to implement thinking that's well, maybe as we've already mentioned, patient and courageous and gracious and merciful. To borrow and then adapt a line from Catherine Keller, one of my favorite theologians. I honestly care very little about the existence of a particular Bible verse. I care about what kind of human existence it fosters. The human will tell me more about that Bible verse than the verse itself. So yes, I think theologically going forward is going backward, but only to reframe a type of origin story. If there was one word that encapsulated the origin story in the West, it just might be capital O, omnipotence. It is a mother of a word. Actually, it's a father of a word, because let's be honest here, gender is crucial It's only the most masculine of cosmological fathers that could begin to describe this all-powerful god of power. As the story goes, at some point in the past, this deity descended from, well, wherever all-powerful gods of power descend from. A separate time and space, from on high, far, far away. We don't know exactly, but the point is, it was surely separate from us. Furthermore, we don't even really care because we just need him here to do his thing, variously described as vanquishing or ordering or overpowering or otherwise just fixing our broken and sterile world. Speaking of Catherine Keller, she uses the term omni-macho. <laughs> I love that phrase. Yes, I believe the omni-macho God has dominated our origin story. Meanwhile, the Hebrew narrator doesn't really say anything about all of that rather with a mix of both masculine and feminine gender references he indicates that in the beginning well there was something already going on the spirit ruach it hovered what was already going on and in that hovering we might see the imagery of a mother hen a maternal presence flapping like fanning the flame of life encouraging nurturing the goodness to emerge out of the tahom, which is a Hebrew word used in Genesis 1-2, indicating like the fluidity, the murky waters of the earth. Now, tahom is often interpreted by black and white binary thinking theologians as being evil because of its fluidity, because of its formlessness, because of its lack of stability, and also because of its immense power. Is there anything more powerful than the fluidity of the sea? What open and relational theology gave me was a way to see, A, how often the early theologians, and then all the other theologians all along the way, interpreted all of that as something bad, something that the omni-macho God needed to overpower and B, how different our lives would be if we didn't start with an origin story that had the world that was here as bad and God as something out there as good. What might be a healthier way to look at all of this is to see the world as a mix of good and bad, and that God was already here. He doesn't need to be the metaphysical hammer that needs to find in creation a nail to pound away at anything unsolid to make it solid. Rather, God is the energy of love who works right within the fluidity of all things. We could see, if we wanted, that the murky, formless, and void, it's symbolic of all of us. There's depths of antagonism and challenge and unstable ideas and powerful potential within each one of us individually and, of course, all of us collectively. And that God is there with us. God is here with us already, From the very beginning, we're not separate. In Him, we move and live and have our being. So the way forward is in part back, but only to course correct our origin story and then to repent from all of our anxiety-driven, scapegoating, projecting religious projects. God is with us. A parent doesn't start loving their kid after they act better. I don't even think that's possible. In the first moments of being a father, honestly, I don't know how else to explain it, my heart just kind of broke in love. I almost thought I heard something inside of me crack open. In retrospect, I imagine that that was a deeper introduction into the contradiction of love, the H-O-L-E, the hole inside of the W-H-O-L-E. And honestly, this might be the whole thing. I mean, think about it. What do you imagine was going on in God's mind as he interacted with or hovered over creation? Do you imagine a God looking down upon everything in frustration, with anger, someone driven by impatient energy to fix, to order, to make everything binary, to get all the wrong out, to perfect? Or is your God more like that first-time parent, walking across the room to see the naked, scrawny little kid eyes blinking to the rhythm of his heartbeat, just feeling his heart break open. Yeah, is your God the one who frowns, who pushes some buttons and fixes everything, makes sure everything is quantifiably perfect, orders everyone's days, orders all the steps, is incapable of feeling the vulnerability of love, has got bigger things to do and then moves on? Or is your God arrested by the beauty of all the potential, held still by that, the gaping hole in his heart, lost in the absurdity of this little powerless thing holding so much power. Or fast forward a few years. What do you imagine was going through God's mind when he interacted with humanity in the garden? Is it different than the way a loving father interacts with his daughter when she makes a mistake? Does the loving father turn his back, point his finger, like to give the girl a sign that she needs to leave for her to never come back until he can figure out how to deal with his rage and anger over such a mistake? Or does your God lean into the problem, lean into the shadows, the place where her mistakes might take her, never once turning his back, always believing, always inviting, never angry at her, though yes, surely angry over the way circumstances play out around her decisions? And even the way circumstances play out that have nothing to do with her decisions. What do you imagine is humanity's origin story, the world's origin story? Lay aside domineering voices, the guys in robes and vestments, or the guys with their big hair in expensive suits. For a moment, just be still. Consider what kind of heavenly parent we might have. So all this parenting analogy stuff really messed me up. Like when I hugged siblings years ago and the loss of their babies. Certain questions were planted deep within the bedrock, the strata of my heart, you might say. When I interacted with my parents and the loss of their daughter, standing at the place where the crime stained the ground, under the sky that was helpless to stop such violence. Watching my parents work through the absurdity yeah, the questions I had grew in between the cracks. And then when the news of our daughter, 20 years young, gone, in an instant, reached my ears, that antagonism, it burst full forth through the rock and sediment, up into the light. It was a forest of questions. Suddenly, I was deep in the shadows, lost in the wilderness. old system gave me a couple three options as to how to respond to such tragedy the first option was something like well i had done something wrong or she my daughter had done something wrong like there was a cause and some sin somewhere and then an effect the effect was she was killed well i rejected that kind of answer real quick for a hundred different reasons not the least of which was what in the hell kind of world would that be For every mistake I made, there was a commensurate punishment. That's a terrible way to live. So the second option goes something like this. It doesn't necessarily specifically attach, you know, the effect to the cause. Like, I hadn't done something wrong specifically. It's just that I lived in a world where God allowed bad things to happen. Because, well, he had a master plan that he was working out, which is like why we can say everything happens for a reason. Now, it probably already evolved to the point where I was rejecting that kind of thinking, but this event certainly purged me of all such thoughts. I go into this in detail in other places, but ultimately, if God's master overall plan included the need to kill my kid, then frankly, it's a terrible master plan. And it's not a God I'm particularly interested in. I decided pretty quickly that really, It's not that everything happens for a specific reason. Life is too complicated and nuanced and relational for that kind of simplistic thinking. So it's not that everything happens for a reason. Rather, I decided that love can help one reason through all things that happen. And a third response my old system gave me, and it's similar to the second a little bit, it went something like, well, his ways are higher than our ways, or... It's all just a mystery. And while I do think the divine thinks at some levels that I'll never be able to access, and while I do imagine that there are part of all of this that will always remain a mystery, what I chafed under, what I didn't like, was how often it was used as a cop-out to stop thinking, to stop asking questions and wondering. It really is the ultimate shutdown move of an outdated way of thinking, the ultimate thing one can say. Like, well, yeah, it's all a mystery. Just think about this for a moment. If it truly all is a mystery, then why do we do anything? If all of it is genuinely beyond our thinking, then honestly, none of this is important. But of course, that's not really what the old system thinks, what they think is, well, yeah, some of this we can figure out and we have figured out that much, but even then there's a veil beyond what we can know. Yes, exactly. I agree. Some of it must be able to be figured out, to be considered. It must be true that at least some of this can be reflected upon and thought about and challenged, and then we can all move forward with new thinking, with new ideas, and make a better headway for the future. Yes. So the point is, don't just play the mystery card as soon as the questions bump against the little wall of the box your religious system has told you you have to live within. Consider that you've already been trying to make good decisions. Consider that you've already been evaluating how to make good decisions, trying to understand life as best you can. You've already been entertaining questions inside of the box. What if the best way forward is inviting you to actually entertain questions about the box itself? I suppose it's important to note, as we're talking about moving forward with church, like the distinction between what you might call institutionalized church and church more as maybe we'd reference it as community. So the former seems to serve to stabilize everything. So you have polity and rules and order, biblical interpretation, etc. And all of that seeks to remove, well, I mean, there's some good reasons behind all of it, but also all of it seeks to remove uncertainty And again, that's not all bad, but after 50 years of doing all of this, I genuinely think that just a little of that, it probably just goes a long way because what happens after a while is that the system encourages people to trade in a living kind of faith that only thrives in the middle of uncertainty for one that has no uncertainty. But the point here is that living without doubt is not only impossible, like living without doubt would mean that there's no reason for faith. I uh, had a conversation with my friend Libby, who is a pastor out in the Northwest, and you know how this goes. It's going to be on my Patreon page, and you can access it at patreon.com forward slash Jonathan underscore Foster. But anyhow, Libby said something cool um, when she was talking about faith work. She was, I think she said something like, you know, faith talk is really just doubt talk, and I like keeping those concepts tightly wound together like that, because it's true. So there's been a lot of good in my life because of the institutionalized church, for sure. Schools and camps and order and systems. And sometimes when I talk about the negative side of church, people will say, well, yeah, but don't forget about all the good things. And that's true. For sure, there have been a lot of good things. For example, like going to a Christian university. But sometimes I think people don't really think through it. Like if I had gone to a secular university, What, are you saying there wouldn't be any good things there? Um, Our youngest happens to be the first on uh, my side of the family, also my wife's side of the family. So we're talking about dozens of people now to go to a state school, the first to not go to a Christian school. And I can tell you, he's developed great friends there. Like there's really good young people who care about the world, who care about their friendships and other things. He plays sports and his coaches are great. It's really been cool. I've never liked the silly propaganda that some Christian schools participate in when they talk about, like, come to our school so that you can have a coach who really cares. Come on, most of us know that that's not necessarily the way it always plays out. If you asked 100 student athletes in both secular schools and Christian schools what their experience has been like, I bet you the response would be about the same. I bet it'd be about 50-50, Just because you're at a Christian school doesn't mean you're going to get some outstanding coach in terms of character and maturity. And this all ties into the institutionalized thing because sometimes it's easier to hide character flaws within systems of institutionalized religion because we kind of buy into this false idea that, oh, well, the overall system is so healthy and good, quote unquote, that it will you know, cover up the flaws of this particular coach or this particular professor or whatever. And that's not really true. In fact, it's not true at all. So his experience has been outstanding, and I'm really thankful for that. So again, I'm not saying a Christian school is necessarily bad. I'm just not saying it's necessarily better than a state school. It just kind of depends. And overall, I suppose at this point, it's safe to say that I'm kind of suspicious of institutionalized church in general. I think most of the time it means well, but far too often what happens is little by little, it will amass the economics and the politics and the power and then build a liturgy to bless the whole thing. And in this way, it really isn't that much different than what we might call empire. Like when you think of how the Bible approached empire, it always involves, well, first of all, think of a pyramid, why the Egyptian pyramids are such a powerful metaphor Um, but think of a pyramid and how the elite are always funneled to the top. So less and less people are getting, are amassing more and more of the wealth or more and more of the power. And then the military is always used to enforce the whole thing. And then there's always some type of liturgy that's developed, some type of religious structure that comes along to bless the movement of the whole thing as well. Institutionalized Christianity in America really is not that much different. It involves and an empirical kind of approach to the whole thing. There may not be a military, but I guarantee you there are people who enforce the rules and certainly the economics and the power and the politics, all those things are involved. So I'm just a bit suspicious after having done this for quite a while now that after a while, you know, church can turn institutionalized, which is different than seeing church as a community. Like that's a whole different thing. I think we need the community. I don't think we need the institutionalized part. In a community, people are free to be themselves. In a community, God can be kept free for all people. You may want to know, well, what would that look like? I don't know. It would incorporate some of the things we've already been talking about. Probably in most cases, it's a smaller rather than a larger community. I think all things equal churches of 2 to 300 or less probably have a better chance of being healthy than the bigger churches. That's not always true, trust me. I know there are power dynamics in small churches as well. I'm just saying all things equal, I think it's probably healthier to go smaller. The larger a group comes, the more it can, you know, fall prey and victim to the other things that we've already been talking about. I imagine a healthier church is a church that's loosely associated with other congregations, not like in a dogmatic uh, theological or financial commitment to a larger group, but rather just uh, within a larger association of people and organizations that help guide them and influence them relationally. I would imagine moving forward that we really need churches of diversity, certainly churches that have female pastors in the mix, Definitely, we need churches who care about the poor. We definitely need churches who care about people that don't look like them. And for sure, we need churches who won't subordinate people to their interpretation of the Bible. Like, like how about this? I often talk about it this way. A place that defines themselves more on what they're for rather than what they're against. We certainly need a place where young people can express themselves, can be themselves, bring their whole personality and their sexuality into the community. We don't necessarily need a church to tell us how to live. We need a church to provide solidarity, to kind of link up in arms and hold space so that young people can figure out how to live. That's a big distinction right there. Sometimes I think of it in terms of trying to develop a tribe without tribalism. Because tribalism will always wind up conforming and pressuring and coercing young people into following certain rules for certain ends that aren't necessarily that healthy. A tribe doesn't necessarily do that. So I think a tribe without tribalism, that'd be super helpful to have moving forward. Of course, the problem with all of this is, and some of you listening or nodding your head, you're like, yeah, I'd love to find a church like that. And the problem is, if you do, you'll start to probably attract people which means you're going to have to have some administrative help. So sooner or later, you're going to have to start drawing up rules and bylaws and creating some order. And all of that can easily lead you into an over-administrated thing and then into institutionalized thinking. And that's not healthy. So this, this is, it's tough to get this right, to try to get a nice balance of, yeah, there's some organization here without the organization piece taking over. I think for me, I kind of thought I had a tribe, and there are some people that definitely fit more in the tribe camp. But really, overall, it was more tribalism. It was really a space that needed a pastor to sincerely adhere to certain philosophical and biblical interpretations in order to continue, you know, operating as it always had. And that's not all bad. I get some organizations have to have rules. The tough part is so much of it was done in the spirit of, you know, of God or the right way to live or the spirit of Jesus, who is totally gracious. And yet in tribalism, there's very little grace. So it was, it was tough. And honestly, if I had to do it over, I'm not sure what the right thing to do is. I mean, it might have just been best to have cut my losses after our daughter had passed away and just told everyone, look. This thing is way bigger than any of us. And I did say those kinds of things, but I still hung in there. I still was trying to reframe the whole thing in light of this grief and this new sense of love that I was feeling. And I suppose I felt really strong about it in part because we had so many young people, including my two boys. I was trying to authentically grieve for them and show them how to be disassembled but then also to turn around and reassemble in life because that's the way life works, man. You're going to get knocked down. It's not about that. It's about how you get up and how you transition and how you change. So uh, that's what I did. I I thought it was the right thing. Who knows? I'm not really sure at this point. But where it led me was to start questioning the box. And no one gave me permission to do that. In fact, there was no one in my life that even wanted me to do such things. I I didn't even want to do such things. The voices in my head, um, that's hard. To retrace a theology that I had been indoctrinated into my whole life, to unlearn the learning, to hang out in that forest of questions. Yeah, everyone, including me, would have rather me go the other direction. That is to ramp up my certitude and certainty and to double down on all my prayer and Bible reading and all my disciplined way of you know, making meaning out of life. But something about that approach just didn't ring true for me any longer. I don't mean to say that it's all bad, but there was something kind of off about all of it. And I think part of it is because I had done that before. I'd already been through so many traumatic things in my life and I can be a very disciplined person. And in times past, having gone through major heartache or major loss, I leaned into all kinds of ascetic discipline in order to like shore my life up or fix things, or, you know, get it figured out, or to find equilibrium. But this time around, that kind of approach didn't seem right. I still use discipline, but I used it to go a different direction. So I followed the trail. I followed the questions. Again, like so many breadcrumbs in the shadow of the forest. I read like crazy, good grief. I listened to podcasts. I took lots of hikes. I started asking questions and genuinely entertaining new answers. I ramped up my reading for sure of folks outside of my tradition. I probably will never forget one time when one of my longtime pastor friends just kind of in derision laughed at me and said, why would you be reading those people? As if I was crazy for thinking outside the box. I mean, imagine a friend saying that. Imagine a pastor friend saying that. And I had conversations with other pastor friends, I kept noticing a certain kind of anxiety that would come over people's countenance and then then their entire body language when I would bring up certain ideas about grace and love and the idea that God was really for all people. And I kind of began to follow that. You know, I've learned something over the years, and this isn't always true, because sometimes people react strongly because there really is danger. But in church world, I've learned that often people react strongly because of some shame that they've suppressed or because of some problem that they've had that they've suppressed that they've never really dealt with. It's some kind of inconsistency. And so when you bring stuff up where people respond with so much anxiety, you know, and their body language just gives it away because they can point their finger or their face can get red. They can shout, they can yell. When you see that kind of stuff happening, you know, it tells me that there's something else going on here, something deeper. And so for me, the more frustrated the system grew, the more it seemed to highlight the breadcrumbs and just lead me out of the forest in certain ways. And so I began to land on Girardian thinking, which helped me understand how our desires are so influenced by the others, which helped me understand that my old system, it wasn't really built on love, no matter how much they told me that. Once I saw the underbelly of the way that it worked, it confirmed for me that it was really built on an ancient ritualized scapegoating mechanism. You know, and if this episode is supposed to be about how to move forward in the church, I personally don't think there's anything more important than understanding the desire, imitation, conflict that leads to scapegoating that Girard talks about, that then leads to the formation of the mechanism itself that the church is so culpable in fabricating. And so I began to identify that, and then I, I landed on other authors like Tom Ord and John Caputo and Catherine Keller. Um, gosh, people like Brian Zahn and Brad Jerzak, which, by the way, they're not really open relational thinkers, but they still helped me tremendously. I began to reread authors like Howard Thurman and old novels from Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. I leaned into new reading, like oh, people like James Cone or James Baldwin. Gosh, there's a hundred other people I can't even mention right now. But I really started paying attention to power uh, and to liberation theology and to feminist theology. And I realized, among other things, that these people had something to say about what it was like to live on the underside of power. And all of it served to confirm some suspicions I had about our daughter's death. Now, I knew that love didn't cause such a thing or plan such a thing. So I discarded the idea that God knew what was going to happen already and had just been preparing me my whole life for such a crazy event to happen. And then at the same time, in the middle of it, I felt like love was inviting me to consider the pain of what it was like to not be in control or even influence how life went. I'm certainly not trying to pretend that an American white male in the 21st century had a lot in common with people on the underside of empire. But that was a part of the point. A part of what was happening was the invitation to be in solidarity with others, which means I needed to admit my culpability, which is all probably for another episode, but also see myself in similar powerless situations. For what did I think was going on in the hearts and the minds of the Native Americans as their sons and daughters were wiped out? And what did I think was going on in the hearts and minds of the Haitians as their sons and daughters were crippled financially by so many choices of the global North? And what did I think was going on in the hearts and the minds of the Africans as the colonizers instituted in broad daylight, no less, a worldwide kidnapping system? What were they thinking as they watched their sons and daughters being rounded up and shipped across the world? What was it like for the Jewish fathers who in a dozen different situations, hell, countless different infamous situations, were forced to watch their kids pushed into concentration camps, into ovens, I sat and reflected upon what it might have been like for someone like, let's say, Eddie Hillison. I call her St. Eddie, living as she did, voluntarily going to concentration camps to help people. She kept a journal, some of which we would have never known about, except as she was led away on the train for the last time. She slipped the journal through the wooden slats out into the cornfield. I sat and imagined that girl, age 29, almost the age my girl would have been right now if she were still alive. I thought about the absurdity of someone who cared so much about others meeting such a disrespectful ending. Journal shoved through slats and railcar That might as well have been cracks in my heart. That could have been the very gaps of the universe. I don't mean to say that I'm anything approaching St. Eddie, but I am one with her. I am one with the pain in the world. I am the African chief, the indigenous midwife, the Haitian town leader, we're all shoving our prayers through slats and rail cars, cracks in our heart, gaps in the universe. We're all trying to figure out the H-O-L-E inside of the W-H-O-L-E, the hole inside of the hole. forward we need to do our best to create spaces where we design churches that don't force us into the position of thinking that God willed it to be this way even more that God can single-handedly change things first if he could change it and hasn't what does that say about his character moving forward we could design spaces where we see our own choices affecting the world and the divine that God isn't the answer as much as God is the question asking us to be the answer A space where the question is about love and love is about consent. Building churches upon consent, it's more difficult. I grant you that. It is easier to stand up and say, this is the way it is for all time. But we all know that that's not true. Things change. So what we could do if we wanted is to build religion upon love and consent. Upon the idea that aleatory chance and randomness, it's built into the very fabric of life. That what the fluidity of the tahome what the chaos of potential of the Tahu Vabahu of Genesis 1, is a way of communicating that God does not or cannot control the evil, but that he or she is doing something even better. She is in the middle of all things unfolding. Yes, love is embedded within the entanglement of everything as it becomes, both good and bad, but that in that embedded way of living, that love is active, continually calling us forth into something new, always inviting us to include the pain but to transcend, to hold the antagonism, to not deny its presence, not have to say that it's evil. Though surely evil sometimes is born out of antagonism, but at the same time, surely good things are born out of antagonism as well. So yes, it's all a mystery, but mystery isn't just the end of all thinking. It's not like it's a wall at the end of the trail coming out of the forest. No, mystery is just another trail that winds us back through the forest and into the plains maybe and up into the mountains and out down the coast. We're constantly walking the mystery, learning something new, changing, growing with a love that cannot protect us from the bad but who will always work in the midst of the bad on our behalf. I admit that this kind of thinking, it changes things. It'll subvert the way the dominant theological systems have wound their structures together. And so, you might lose estimation of the dominant crowd. The crowd that wants everything to be black and white, clearly right or wrong. The crowd who names all things fluid and ever-changing. Eventually, they have to name it as something bad or evil. Yes, this kind of thinking will change us. It'll change the way we pray, the way we read scripture, the way we relate to the world, certainly the way we think about power and the way we think about church. I think it's probably the reason why most people don't entertain this kind of thinking because it invites us into so much unknowing. And the church, at least the way it's currently structured, tightly bound together by so much institutionalized thinking, yeah, it needs you to believe that unknowing is evil. But it's not true. Unknowing is where love might thrive the most, I've been trying to answer the question about, well, like, is there any reason to keep going with church? What is even the point? And I've intentionally not responded with a response that goes something like, well, here are the 11 bullet points for why this makes sense. Rather more like, here are some concrete things for sure. But also here's where a lot of this was hitting me, how I was experiencing it, how it continues to hit me, how I continue to experience it. I think there's a huge need to create spaces where this kind of thinking, the kind of stuff we talk about here on this episode is entertained. I think there's a great need for young people to, yes, of course, clean up their lives. I mean, get some stuff straight. Fine. Yes, do that. Because people can come from some really broken places in this world and they'll need order and routine and ritual. That's all a part of making boundaries and it's good. But what we really need goes even deeper. It's the honesty to say, That all the routine in the world, all the order in the cosmos cannot stop bad things from happening. Because like, if American Christianity's theology is true, if institutionalized thinking is true, then their God knew that this bad stuff, it was going to happen all along, yet still went ahead with creation and put everyone in harm's way. Of course, the snappy rejoinder is usually something like, well, who are you to question God? The thing is, I don't even think I'm questioning God. I think I'm questioning the people who wrote the rules about how I'm supposed to think about God. I think they meant well, they're not bad. But now we live in a new day with new knowledge and a lot of people are saying, look, there's something about the old way of thinking that is just off. Namely, one, if God controls things, everything really should be better off than it is. And two, wait a minute, why would I even want a controlling God? I don't even like controlling people. And three, time out. Does love even control? Could you even call such a thing love? Moving forward, I think the most important thing is developing communities who build upon love, real love. Not conditional love that sees God as angry and sending people away in the end. No, non-binary, nonviolent, non-scapegoating love. Something that esteems consent. I mean, what's the truest thing we want to be said of our God? What's the best thing? What's the most helpful? A God in control, unaffected, disinterestedly moving the world around as someone might play a game of chess who already knows what the opponent is going to do before the opponent does it? Or someone not in control, but still very much capable of bringing good out of really painful stuff. Like what's the closest we can get to accuracy when we describe God? Is it omni-macho or love? I vote the latter. It doesn't fix everything, but it does foster healthier environments. It promotes agency and autonomy. We need a church that celebrates the chaos in the quantum, the indeterminacy of the life, the vulnerability of love and the reality that we can still live good, strong, true, gracious, compelling lives in the middle of it all, dare I say we could still be patient, courageous, and merciful to others and ourselves? Yep, I end as I started. I think that would be a great reason to keep going with church. I recently, I caught up with my friend Libby. She's a pastor out in the Northwest in the great state of Idaho. And we carried this conversation a little bit further. You're going to have to find it on my Patreon page. Just search for Jonathan underscore Foster. But here's a couple of minutes of it. I really appreciated my time with Libby. I know you will too. Peace, everyone.
1: At the heart of that question of like what has been good and what has been bad, it's like when it's good, it's beautiful. Like when church is good, it is community it is love it is support it is filling in the gaps it is um you know other people helping you see things that you couldn't possibly see on your own when church is good it is nourishing when church is good it is hopeful um and when church is bad it is like traumatizing and painful and grief-filled and abusive and gross right um and i have sadly been on both ends of the spectrum um of the really good parts of church and the really ugly parts of church. Um, And my life's work now that I'm that I'm living in Wyoming and have sort of been on a trajectory of parting ways with the denomination that raised and nurtured me, which was a really dark night of the soul, Um, my trajectory now is to help breathe life into the kind of church that sort of like if anybody else that believes in like orthodox church were to look at our church they'd be like there's no way like that is not church but i know it to be church because it's gathered community and it's gathered community in a spirit of loving and being loved and so i've given my i've given my entire existence to that and um i love it and it looks it looks different every year like i was literally having a conversation i get i receive coaching um i'm also i also live and work as a coach too but I received coaching and I had a conversation with my coach today where I was like year to year the thing that we're doing that is definitely church that others wouldn't recognize as church it looks so different so it looks way different than when we first started and that's okay and we're still I think at the core gathered in the name of love to receive love and give love and like boom that's that's the heartbeat of a good church I
0: like it. is that something that